We hired people who helped us take our ideas and quickly turn them into something we can give to the customer or learn it's terrible and not give to the customer. And I think the big thing here was if we had so much we wanted to try, the sooner we could build a team to try those different parts. Some of it's in the back office, you don't even see it. But we need to try to see if the whole model of the business is correct. You're listening to This Much I Know, the Siege Camp podcast. Hello, everyone. Podcast is going to be a lot of fun because I have two of my favorite friends on the planet on this show, uh, David Mitten and Devin Hunt, both successful in their own right, both entrepreneurs in their own right, both very experienced at what they do. Welcome to the show, guys. Hello. Hello. So we have a topic today that many people probably scratch their heads on every time that it comes up and uh, is one that is hard for somebody who's not from a, a background in tech to really grasp. And I am titling this podcast today very, uh, very rhythmically as Unpack the Stack. Now we hear about people who are full stack this and full stack that. And what we want to get to as part of this uh, episode is what is it that you need to build out a team of product design or engineering? So with that, uh, let's get started, guys. Uh, Let's do this. Let's um, do a very brief background of, of, of each one of you. Let's start with you, David, uh, like kind of what you did just to give a little context to the audience. I started a company called Server Density in 2009, which was one of the first software as a service infrastructure and monitoring companies. So if you know Datadog or New Relic, then you know what Server Density did. And Seedcamp funded us 2009, very long time ago. I built the original version of the product, hired all the team. We had a remote engineering team for the lifetime of the company, and then had an office for sales and marketing in London. Sold the company in 2018 to an edge computing company based in the US, where I then ran product engineering, team of a couple of hundred people, revenue kind of two, 300 million. And I was there until the end of 2019 and then joined Seedcamp informally, I suppose, as an EIR to help out portfolio companies. Been doing a bit of angel investing, did a master's degree in environmental technology. And as of this year, I have been running Console, which helps developers find the best tools weekly newsletter highlighting really interesting tools for developers to try out. Boom. Devin. Yeah. So I, I, I went to university originally for electrical engineering, but ended up in computer science and started a, uh, a game studio out of there in 2007, which ended up raising some fundraising from Y Combinator and then from a group of amazing angels. And the interesting thing there, I think, to highlight is that we were a, a game studio. We were building very different stuff than web software. Out, out of the gate. And so full stack dev there means something very different than full stack dev other places. But that company went through its usual hype cycle. We raised a bunch of money, spent it all, didn't do anything. And in 2010, I founded my second business called List with uh, Chris Morton and Seb Trepka. And that was much more traditional web business and actually grew. We actually grew the team significantly there and hired a lot of engineers. One of the, one of the fun things about List being that it's a, a fashion startup is that we're 85% we're developers in the business. So it's a majority of engineering business using data to help sell fashion in a more efficient and, and better way. And left that business later on to start training entrepreneurs to be better entrepreneurs, founder-centric. And, and that's where we got really heavily education and started to realize the disconnect between 
what people think developers can do and what they want them to do and, and how that doesn't always fit together squarely in a lot of people's expectations. And then I, you know, along the line around 2017, 2018, I sort of signed on to C-Camp uh, originally as an EIR and then became the first venture partner for Fund4. And now I started a fourth-ish business called Useful, which is a engineering sort of software company to help independent authors publish books more efficiently across the myriad of options in the uh, internet. Cool. So with that, let's get started. Uh, one of the comments you made, Devin, actually is a good place to start. You said full stack developer meant something differently in a game studio than it did, let's say, in some SaaS business doing fintech, whatever. I think one of the things that is confusing, and I'm just going to create the context here, as you've seen, both both of you have seen, it's, it's not unusual for somebody who's got a, a commercial understanding of a problem that a customer has to want to start a company and maybe start outsourcing things uh, as a start to get wireframes and get things started. And then shortly find themselves either having to supplement the one person they have in their team or start building out an internal team that includes everything from a designer, a product manager, a head of product, engineering, and VP of engineering. And all these terms mean different things and they all come in different levels of priorities and stuff. So maybe we can start with what does uh, being a full stack developer mean to you and where does that sit in an org chart as that org chart develops? So I'm somewhat skeptical of the title of full stack developer. I'm not sure it really exists. Certainly not in companies that are any kind of scale. I think the real challenge with technology today, which is quite different 10 years ago when I started building server density, is that Front-end and back-end development are so complicated when you get anything sophisticated, when you have any kind of real product that you're building. And full stack implies not just front-end and back-end, but all the DevOps stuff as well. And the idea with DevOps is that engineers are responsible for running the code that they write in production, which I think is, is a very important principle. But expecting to find a single person who can cover the full stack really it is almost impossible once you your product starts growing and um, past a certain point i think you can certainly expect developers to be able to dabble in whichever side it is and it's often the case that front end gets kind of put in a bucket where it's so oh, it's just a little bit of design and and some forms on the website and maybe if you're just building a website that's the case or a very simple app but i think modern applications today are just so complicated that engineering is the right word. Uh, it's engineering interfaces, user experience, design, and everything that goes with that. And then the back end, building all the APIs, all the technologies that we have today, figuring those out is an entirely separate job. It's very specialist. And then being able to run the whole thing is also pretty complicated. So perhaps full stack is where you start and you maybe hire one or two people in a very early stage startup that do cover everything just through necessity. But really as the company is growing, that changes pretty quickly where you get specialisms coming in. Yeah, I just, I'm not, I, I'll just echo exactly what David said. I think full stack for me was, is a gross oversimplification of a time between like 2006 and like 2010, where like you had a backend, which was a Ruby or Python or something backend, and you had a front end. And you had developers who worked front and back, and the full stack was the person who was comfortable doing both. And that just doesn't exist anymore. I mean, you know, I, some of the companies I work with are building on blockchain on Web3, 
what what is a full stack developer there? Like, is it contract writing? Is it the React app that skins a contract? There's so many pieces to it that doesn't make sense. So, yeah, it's full stack for me. If someone says it, I think they're looking for someone who can touch every aspect of the product, from how the business logic works all the way to what the user experiences. But the technologies that it crosses over is a myriad of them, and, and it's very hard to define in a concrete sense. I think you also have to be careful that you're not just using it as a way to avoid paying proper salaries for proper specialists or and build a proper team. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. Well, let's I talk about teams. Sorry, go ahead, David. Finish that thought, and then we'll talk about team. No, I think that's the the right transition to because you you can get the this full stack personality at the very beginning where you can only get just a couple of people and they are touching everything, uh, but really there's so much specialism in the when you're building out the product team um, that it's not a role that lasts for long. So on these roles that don't last for long, I mean, people are not disposable, right? You want to invest in people and you want to invest in people over a long time. And so one argument would be don't hire somebody who's for this sort of like little stopgap when you know you're going to have a company, you've already raised funding. So we're not talking about a theoretical company here. We're talking about a company that's already raised funding. So let's map out a team. You know, like uh, I, I used those three things intermittently. Um, if I use the nomenclature, David, that you used, um, if we just stick to three, which is kind of what you mentioned, I'd, I'd like to get Devin's thoughts of whether it's four, designer, front-end, back-end, and DevOps, so that designer being a separate, and then maybe even five, product manager. We might not be part of that. I just want to get a sense of what are the constituents of a team here, a product team, and then as we start mapping out the roles that each one of them play. Right. So it's useful to think about this by where you're going, because it assumes almost infinite money once you start to uh, to build out uh, kind of all these roles within the team. Um, but I think that's the right way to think about it. You've got front end and you've got back end and they're, they're quite separate engineering disciplines. The back end really is about APIs these days, building out the API to allow whatever the user interface is, whether it's command line, an actual API or a user interface, probably all of those. Um, and just providing that data layer. Then you've got the front end, which is actually what the user is interacting with. And that might be a, a really good command line interface, um, but it could also be a mobile apps, those kind of things. Um, obviously where you can get even deeper splitting front end into web and the different types of mobile apps, but maybe that's a little too, too deep for this point of the conversation. Um, and then the DevOps side of things. I also have a challenge using DevOps as a title because it is a hybrid role. You go back 10 years where you did have a sysadmin who was responsible for logging into servers and making sure they work. Over the last decade, that's changed so that developers take control. They take responsibility for their code. And this means that they're the ones being woken up when things are breaking. They're on call for the code that they write. And that's because they know it best, but also the incentives are there to fix problems when they're waking people up, which is is no fun for anyone. And that DevOps role, I don't think it's a job title, really. I think it's a methodology for how you implement this crossover between developers and operations. And where there is a job role is with the new idea that Google's popularized of site reliability engineering. And that is a separate team, the SRE team, who really look after the platform. And they might be like a consulting group that come in to advise your little engineering team on certain things. And then they go off again, to keep running the platform. And the same applies to security as well. You probably wouldn't have a full-time operations uh, SRE or security person on a product team, but they might come in to consult as you're building things out or solving problems. Devin, maybe you can add to that, but also I want to 
I'm, I'm trying to putting money aside for a second, or rather think of a company that's like endless amount of money. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to build out this org chart mm-hmm. and functions. And now you might not need all those roles. And right now, from what David said, I'm visualizing an org chart that has three, like the the product division, right? And it's got three branches and one branch is front end, one's back end, one's DevOps. And whether or not DevOps is a subset of back end temporarily, or this is a separate practice, I'm trying to figure out whether or not there's additional, like the product manager or whether there's designer. I just want to map out that whole organization. Yeah. I mean, it, the, the tricky thing here is that there's no correct way to do it. Like I've worked with, we've, I'm sure we've all worked with multiple teams who have very different ways of, of building that architecture of their team or the landscape of how they all interact. But I, I think the one thing that I think David sort of really mentioned that I want to highlight is this idea that like, there's so many engineering roles in modern application design. And that's why like, it's, there's no one size fits all because you say you're building a, a business that is extremely dependent on creating your own customized machine learning model and then an API to serve the results of that model to people. Like that's a very engineering heavy culture. And there might be multiple teams working on that model and multiple teams working on both the customer experience and the uptime and the reliability of that API. And, and it has to be designed for that business. And so one, one of the things that I sort of look at when thinking about that org chart to sort of half answer your question, Carlos, is the roadmap. And like the roadmap sort of teaches you what kind of team you need and how you design that team. So like, you know how like when you start something new, you always reach for like that old thing you like and try to use it as a template moving forward. For me, that's very much like a squad-based analogy. So it's not, there is a product manager as engineers. It's like, there's one big thing you're working on that you build a team around. And then as you grow that business, maybe those products separate or there's multiple products or there's there's like a, a, an enterprise service level product and the consumer level service product, the same core. Maybe there's three teams and the core team, the enterprise service team and the consumer service team. And the consumer service team might have like 16 designers because you're building this beautiful user experience. And the enterprise team has one who knows how Salesforce works. And the core team is all engineers, but, but there's still a product manager. And so you can start to see how like based on what you're trying to create, that becomes very fluid. But I think like the core roles that any good team needs to think about bringing on board and 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 there's a caveat to this quickly is like someone to build the stuff, someone to design the experience and how the customer consumes that stuff and someone to manage that whole process. And that manager is also talking to customers, potentially even doing sales in sort of like a tangential way. Like they're the ones who are creating that very strong dialogue between the people they're serving and then working with the team who's building it. So there's some cohesive nature to that construction. And, and the caveat there is that person's usually the founder or one of the founders in an early stage team. So you can sort of delay that a bit, but, but that's the nature is like the people who are the product managers, and that can take a variety of small forms, the people who are helping design and, and funnel that roadmap experience and the people who are building that. And and there is obviously fluidity between those layers as well. It's not just concrete. So I think I've, I've noticed that one of the challenges we have in that question I asked you guys is that it's a theoretical company with a theoretical roadmap with a theoretical, and it becomes harder yeah. to like specify. And so I think what we need to do is start creating a few scenarios. And the reason why I want to create the scenarios is because it's not unusual that all three of us will get emails from founders saying, hey, look, who do I hire first? a junior engineering person, a senior designer, a senior product manager who can then hire and man. And and maybe guys pick two scenarios and how you would hire differently, the priorities of who you would hire first, depending on those scenarios. So like, don't, don't, uh, don't, don't choose abstraction, like think precision thing. 
okay, for this specific consumer facing app, I would do hire this person first, then this person, this person, and then try to find like the, the, the corollary to that. And then we'll maybe David start with you and then Devin with you, just so that the listeners can, can be like, they can understand how that roadmap that you were talking about, Devin is amended the, the team, the squad that makes up the first group. I'd say a good rule of thumb to be working off is the limit to the number of people that an individual can manage. And that is seven to 12 people, 12 being the very maximum for a full-time manager, managing a team, doing nothing else. And so that gives you the ideal size of the team that you're trying to build. Aiming for seven is, is a good number. And you can kind of scale that as you're going through the hiring process. But as soon as you start getting into double digits and it becomes really challenging. And so the question for the founder is, well, what am I spending all of my time on? What am I good at? And what do I want to hand off to somebody else? And so the the answer to that will depend on whether it's technical founder or non-technical. Let's assume technical because we're, we're building a, a product here. The other rule of thumb there is that you never outsource anything that is core to your business. So it's a huge red flag to me if there's a startup that has outsourced any part of their software development because a software startup is building software. <laughs> you don't outsource that. That's a little different for accounting. Obviously, you don't have in-house accounting for an early stage startup. And that does change in the future, but certainly not the beginning. And so I think that is another key decision point because of uh, some early stage startups do have to outsource a few things where just let's say design, for example, you might have contracted to design um, from a freelancer just because you don't have that, that capability. And if you do consider that to be part of your core competencies, which again, I would argue you should as a, as a tech startup, then maybe design is going to be the limiting factor. And, and that is potentially the first hire. But for me personally, when I was building Servidency, the bottleneck was engineering capability and just the time that I had personally to build out features, fix bugs, and then do all of the other stuff that we used to be able to do, you know, like flying and traveling to visit investors and all that, visiting customers as well and all those kind of things, which um, you need to figure out where your time is best spent. And the mistake I made was trying to hire engineers who could just do the engineering, which was junior to mid-level engineers with limited experience in that they could take over what I was doing, but there was less of an ability for them to lead and make architectural decisions. And for me, I would now try and find more senior experienced roles, people who can take those decisions and work almost autonomously taking off some of the engineering tasks that as a technical co-founder you're, you're working on so that you can then focus on other things whether that's still programming maybe or on some of the other business related things that founders have to do. So David, you, you, you answered the question very beautifully, slightly created only one scenario, which is the server density scenario. So I'm going to, I'm going to pick Devin as maybe the non uh, server density type business, which is like well, non. So now it's the absolute opposite of server density. Well, a non-technical I mean, founder. The, the easiest thing to talk through is my own experience and like mm. the decisions we made and didn't make. Because obviously, I could a straw man scenario isn't maybe maybe going to be as easy to discuss in a critical fashion. So I'll talk about list in the early days of list because the early, list was interesting because 
uh, the, the co-founding team was was Chris, who you know, very skilled in business and, and investing, and super savvy in the fashion world. And then myself, who has sort of I'd say like half a designer hat and half an engineering hat at that stage in my career. And then Seb Trecha, who's a super talented Python developer, like one of the core Django contributors, like he he knows his stuff. And so we were a very technical team in terms of a, a, a co-founding trio. And what became super apparent very early on is that we had two major problems we had to fill. One, the software we needed to build to, to create what we wanted List to be at the time and, and still is to this date to a point was complicated. We had a scraping functionality. We had a categorization and, and sort of an early ML functionality. We had a data sequestering functionality. And we had the whole delivery of different interfaces to customers for purchasing and payment gateways, which at the time, you know, Stripe was literally just starting. So like payment gateways was still a complicated engineering job. So we had this huge engineering. At the same time, like we were working in a world where aesthetics and display and presentation were king, right? We're in fashion. Like the way the shoe is shown on the screen, there's like 17 people who care how that works at a corporate, at like an executive level when the partners are working with. So we had this also huge user experience design side of it. And so we looked at the hiring roadmap and at the end of the day, I think the history speaks for itself. Our first hires were engineers. We didn't hire any designers. We didn't hire any, any like marketers or people who have that sort of like fashion experience. We hired people who helped us take our ideas and quickly turn them into something we can give to the customer or learn it's terrible and not give to the customer. And I think the big thing here was if we had so much we wanted to try, the sooner we could build a team to try those different parts. Some of it's in the back office. You don't even see it. But we need to try to see if the whole model of the business is correct. That was hypercritical. And then after the first three hires, which were engineers, I believe, oh no, and we hired Hillary. So we had a business person in between as well who helped us start making those connections. That was that. So it had nothing to do with the software in the sense that it didn't build software, but Hillary brought in all the partners and helped to create those connections. Um, we then hired, we then started hiring marketing and we then started hiring more of a soft skill approach. And so like, for us, it was at the end of the day, it was like the first hires had to be people who helped us build the software, even though we had two technical founders on the team doing the same thing. Because at the end of the day, our time was not well spent in SQL. Our time was better spent thinking about what the SQL needs to do in the first place. And so that starts to get into more of a product managery role for the founder, almost from the get-go. Okay. So let's let's talk about that product managery role for the founder. I know that both of you are technical, and in some ways, it's easy to default back to to being um, assuming that you know the bulk of the audience will be a technical founder or co-founder. So now let's assume somebody who's opinionated about the product, understands the customer quite well, um, might have a vision for what the product should look like, but is definitely not technical. I want to understand how you would consult with them to provide a roadmap for who they should hire um, as they start building out their first team. They're migrating from an outsourced team who's done the first mock-up and MVP. And they're finally just closed around and they're building out their internal team. How would you advise uh, them building out the product? Just to give you an idea, it's a um, it's an app for enterprise customers to be able to engage with uh, employees. So there's a there's a the front end to it. It's app based. It, it does have some uh, some data entry and, and stuff like that. There's just painting roadmap of what it looks like. Well, I mean, I guess in that scenario, like the easiest thing to first consider is you need someone who can not only hit the ground running by being productive in code, but also can 
manage that handover from the outsource team, right? So you're looking at an, an engineer, a senior engineer who has managerial skills to manage that for you. A, a tricky hire to say the least, but like that's the sort of person you need because if you're now transitioning away from an agency model, that means you now need to build an in-house team to take over what took an agency to build. So you now to think, I need someone who has like both individual contrib- con- contributor aspects because they're going to have to help us keep moving forward. But at the same time, they're going to be hiring that team and managing the outsource team's transition. So that's like a hypercritical hire. And if that skill set isn't on the founding team, I mean, this shows like a huge gap in their ability to execute in a fast fashion, right? It's like, great, we got money now. We have to pause development for months to find someone to take over this development or keep throwing it at the agency, become more reliant on it. Anyway, that aside, like that's the hire you need to make as someone senior, which is always a trickier hire, takes longer. But if you have funding, hey, great, like spend for it. <laughs> I think one of the biggest pieces of advice I give recently to a couple of startups is they've been trying to spend less on hires because they want to you know, be frugal with their budgets and not just blow capital for capital's sake. But like, it's causing to slow down. And so like, you have to sometimes just like pay that higher salary to get that better person in. You just got to do it. Like you got, you're fighting against the sales force. You're fighting against Apple and you're fighting against Facebook. Like you're never going to match their salaries, but you can definitely go above market to get someone great in who's going to allow you to grow that team. Like you have to do that sometimes. So when you say senior engineer, I know we were talking a little bit earlier about front end, back end, DevOps, design or product manager. Maybe David, you can take a stab at what, what, what kind of like? Remember, I'm uh, put put me in the role of the co-founder. You're talking to me. I'm asking you this advice. Hey, mate, I'm trying to wean myself off of the addiction of an agency. I need to hire somebody. What do you? What kind of engineer? Well, in this scenario where the product has been built by an agency, it implies there is no technical co-founder, and I would say you need that you need that person as soon as possible. Someone who could have been the technical co-founder. And that's more than a senior engineer because it's really difficult to find someone who has the founder mindset. And you need that because as a non-technical founder, you're going to have to work with engineers and you won't understand what they're telling you. And you and it's not necessarily that you won't understand everything, it's you won't be able to push back on when they're telling you stuff that is 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 wrong maybe but more likely that you need to challenge things on what you need to do to hit deadlines or how you need to prioritize features in particular technical debt is something that engineers rightly dislike and they always want to be refactoring and sometimes rewriting and that's almost always the wrong decision to rewrite but you can't argue with someone technical if you're not technical So you need that person who can sit alongside you as the CTO or co-founder to back you up, understand the business, because 50% of the CTO's job is technology. The other 50% is the business, because that's the whole purpose of the technology to deliver for the business. And that's what engineers don't generally understand until they get to the very experienced levels about how their job interacts with everything that comes part of running a business. And so that's the most important for this uh, non-technical co-founder to find someone that they consider an equal to work with them to move the business forward through all the hiring and the product planning and talking to customers, but to represent that technical aspect to the founding team, to the investors and to the board. And unfortunately, it's really, really difficult to find this person. 
and in particular, as Devin mentioned, on the speed, you're going to it's going to take six months to find this person at least from when you decide to start finding them to the day when they actually join the company and begin. And then it's probably another few months for them to actually be productive, plus or minus a few months always there. But six months is a good rule of thumb for how long it takes to find this kind of person. And so what I've seen many seed camp companies do is in the interim period, you find what's called the interim CTO. And this is quite a well understood role. There are plenty of people who do it. And you bring someone in who has all of this experience and they've been at companies, multiple companies from um, at multiple stages and their job is to come in and run your engineering organization, then hire their replacement, usually over a timeline of six to 12 months. And then they disappear and they go and do the same thing at another company. And they're very specifically doing this job because they don't want to be that full-time CTO because there are are many benefits, certainly, of being a CTO, but there are many downsides as well. And they like the aspect of kind of running things for short term, building up a team, putting the processes in place, and then hiring their replacement. And so this is a very expensive role, unfortunately, but it's money well spent because it means you don't lose that velocity as you're trying to find someone who can be a full-time member of your exec team. So I'm going to take both of your advice and I'm going to continue down that path. So on the one hand, spend more, find the right person. It's going to take six months to find that person. That person has to be somewhat commercially minded, has to be almost thought of as a, as a co-founder in, in, in their ownership of the of the idea of the commercial balance with the technical capability. But I'm still left with the problem of how do I evaluate this person? If I have no idea, then how do I evaluate this person? How do I even write a job spec accurately that that captures what it is that I'm looking for, what what you know, what what to practice they might be coming from? Should their background be from the back-end practice or from the DevOps practice, from the front-end practice? So just riff on that and then we'll go into the different uh, different roles in more detail. Yeah, I think it's challenging, right? because you can't assess those people. And that's why you have the interim CTO role. And to find an interim CTO, you want recommendations from within the community. And that's why you have investors, because they have the network, they have a portfolio, and it's likely that their companies will have experienced this. So the first step is getting referrals to two or three interim CTOs who you can meet with, Uh, You can get a quote. They're very similar in terms of of the standard rate uh, for these kind of people. And then you pick the one that you like the the most and you get a reference from a couple of companies they've worked with, ideally within the portfolio. And then they sit with you in the interviews. They help do all the selection because they're there to hire their replacement. Uh, You can even ask your investors to get involved. I've done this with a few of my angel investments where I've done interviews for some engineers in some cases, but also for the CTO role. And I think that's a really good way to leverage your investors. Most of the time they just provide money, but where you're getting angel investors, you probably want to pick a nice, broad, diverse set of people who have different experiences and different roles. And most of the time they'll sit there and not really do much, but this is one of those occasions where you can bring them in for a very defined piece of work, like sit on a call with someone for 30 minutes and ask them questions and interview them, and then give me your opinion. And hopefully that can then help you filter through and get a second opinion on these people to bring in. Seven. Yeah, I echo the same. I think um, what background is hyper-dependent on the type of company you want to build, but good engineering leaders, especially when you're looking at people to lead the roadmap and hire in, 
that's a different skill set entirely and that's what you should be vetting um obviously if you're building a you know a devops focused tool but you don't have any developers on the founding team there might be a bigger problem in place in the first place um but like yeah so i'm assuming this person's probably building more of a consumer facing app maybe you know so if you're building something on the blockchain then obviously you want someone with blockchain experience to help you build that team if you're focusing on more like in mobile apps hopefully they come from that background so they can bring a lot of that inbuilt experience and knowledge about what works well with mobile apps you know so like i think that's really is like higher inside the sector you're interested in or your your company is focused on and but ultimately like those those top level managerial skills and roadmap skills and vision skills like that's a that's a whole different thing to vet through talking through recommendations really follow up and and leverage your your network your your investors your old work colleagues to really help you figure out if this is the right person cool all right so i'm going to draw a line on that that trajectory and i'm going to start a, an entirely different thread so now we're going to go into helping decipher different branches and i'm going to i'm going to give you what i mean by a branch so in my world let's say like a venture capital um there is branches that are very well known very publicly well known you know there's like partners maybe there's general partners you know whatever but there's partners there's sometimes there's vps sometimes there's principals then there's associates analysts and interns right and that's what i mean by uh, a hierarchy of both experience, but also seniority, right? Like the, the two things um, are a map and then you kind of know where one person sits. And then if 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 I were if you were to ask me, Carlos, how do I start a VC fund? I would never tell you start with an analyst, right? Like you, you need at least two partners. Um, and if, if an organization has three partners, what's the next hire? Well, it depends on their idea. You would hire maybe a fourth one if all you want to be a partner-led fund or maybe you would hire your first analyst, right? And there's different methodology. So I know that the same thing exists for any kind of branch of any different role. And so I want to explore three branches, the design branch, the product management branch, and the engineering branch. Let's start with the engineering branch. So what I want to do is I want to understand maybe David from you is like, take whatever company you want as an example. I know, and, and, and the temptation is to go to like an entirely engineering driven organization where like the CEO's engineering, the server density was like that, right? I, I'm just encouraging you to think maybe of a, a, a company that's more like general, that does have an engineering practice, but it isn't entirely like, it's not like a DevOps tool, right? And so I want to understand what the engineering tree looks like, how it connects to the other branches of the organization, like who's that interface point? and how it, it interfaces and then like the seniority levels and how you would hire for it. Yeah, it makes sense. So the obvious caveat is that every company does their own different thing, but talking through how I would suggest you start thinking about this. And of course you can, you can just change it as you like. So you've obviously got the CEO at the top and then you have the CTO reporting into them equal to the CTO is you, is the VP of engineering. And these two roles are very distinct. And the decision that a technical co-founder often has to make fairly early on is, do I want to be a VP of engineering or do I want to be the CTO? And what is the difference? Well, the CTO focuses on technology and the VP of engineering focuses on people. You can blur these a little bit, but that's generally how things work. And the CTO often 
ends there in the in the org chart. They don't have anyone reporting to them. Um, as the company grows, they may have their own organization where they have their own engineering teams within. But because it's a focus on technology, that often means it's uh, experimentation or research or just playing around with things that might not be in, be in production today, but you hope would develop into something that maybe a product or a new part of the platform functionality at some point in the future. And of course, this is a, a, probably a later stage company where that is the case. And this merges as a company is earlier because really the CTO has to be focused on product in the early days. They can't just be by themselves doing research. Um, but ultimately, that's where it gets to. And then you have the VP of engineering who looks after all the people. And this is where things start to get a bit different depending on <coughs> depending on the company that you're in, but the engineering managers report into the VP of engineering and the engineering manager job is to manage the engineers, those seven to 12 people in their little group um, that are focused on a particular thing. Again, early stage startups, you might not have this kind of deliberate structure and you may just have one engineering team, but over time, as that organization grows, you're going to get focus into different product areas, uh, different customer types, however you want to organize that. And the job of the VP of engineering really is to make sure that all the people are happy and that they're delivering and they're productive and to help with the hiring and the retention of the teams. And often they'll then be working with the engineering managers to help make technical decisions. Um, sometimes that's architecture and you might bring in the CTO and their group at that point. Um, implementing new technology decisions, those kind of things, uh, but they're really there for the execution. And they work hand in hand with product, with the product management organization. But product is interesting. We will come on to it, but product is interesting because they don't have, really have control over anything. They have no, often they have nobody reporting to them. There's no product manager who has engineers reporting into them, but they are still responsible for the delivery of the product, whether that's fixing bugs that customers have reported, prioritization, talking to customers. And they're really there to persuade the engineering team to build what they want them to build. And they kind of work hand in hand. And then underneath the engineering manager, there's that group that we talked about earlier with front end, back end, um, maybe security and the product manager, perhaps within that product group. And this can kind of cascade out into a big tree diagram and it can get pretty deep, but um, that's generally how I would set it up. That's super helpful. Um, now, Devin, I'm going to pick on you because the there's a bridge that uh, david created uh with the product management being the sort of the peak of that bridge and then engineering here and i know that depending on who i have a chat with they will have different opinions as to where design sits if it yeah. if it belongs in there as a separate function whether it sits within engineering whether it sits within product management just want to get your feeling of that overall map maybe fill in the blanks and then comment on design yeah totally um I guess the, the design point we'll, we'll address first because it's tricky. I think design's a difficult world because it means so, so many different things depending on the type of business and the type of product you're talking about. And so when I approach building out an org chart, I tackle it slightly differently. And I really like to at least start with, and this changes as things scale to hundreds of employees, but I like to start with um, like the more squad-based metaphor where the product manager is the sort of de facto leader and manager of that squad. And inside that squad, it's usually focused around... Now, it can be organized around either a sprint lane or it can be organized around a, a product itself. So say, for example, I'll just use the model of like, you have a web app and you have a mobile app and you have 
an API. And so you have sort of three squads around both those things. And the product manager's role is to manage that product and make sure that its roadmap is, is like on point and it's shipping. And the reason I mention that is because the product manager will have different traits based on what they're working on. You can have very technical product managers and very design-oriented product managers and, and everything in between. And so it's not so much a bridge is required as much as just sort of a re congealing of, of the different roles. And so in that, in this case, the product manager might have four or five engineers on their team and one designer, or might have 10 engineers and may, maybe just be talking to a different designer once in a while for help, but really just using base assets for what they need because they're not touching a lot of designed aspects. Now, there's a whole, <laughs> it's a whole discussion around like what is design software versus pixels and stuff like that. But, but I guess that's the big difference for me is like design plays when you sort of take the squad approach, the design is a requirement of that squad, not so much a requirement of a role in the company. Right. And, you know, some companies who are larger taking us to a very large extreme where like there is a product, which is the design system. And that's just basically 10 designers all working together to provide like an agency effect for the rest of their company by providing great assets and guidelines and design principles and frameworks that they can just use in their own, in their own stuff they're working on. And so like when, when you're early stage, like this is like sub 20 people, I don't think you need to be so, so precious on the uh, very tight tree as much as think about this is the space that you're working on. And this is the people you need. This is basically a loose squad. And sometimes everyone's working on the same thing, which is one app. Some people work in different parts of the app and, and you sort of start to rearrange and reorganize it as you need. And, and design is just like, some companies don't need a designer. Like they just don't need a designer full-time on the team. Some companies need a lot of them if they're, you know, very intense and new customer experience. Um, so I guess like, yeah, so that's my roundabout way of saying like, I like to think about it as like who manages an aspect of the product and what are the people you need to keep working on and growing that mm. roadmap? That's how okay. I organize it. So let's, let's play with this. I feel like David did a great job of uh, mapping out the engineering tree. I feel like the product management tree, we now understand what it does. My point is they're not separate trees in the way I do it. They're the same tree. No, uh, totally, totally. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to do two separate things here. One of them is where the organization would be 10 years down the road. And, mm. what, you know, like you end up, unfortunately, with some sort of, because uh, I do agree with, with David's point that seven to 12 people is the most any one person can manage. Inevitably, you end up having a tree of people reporting to people, right? Yeah. And so it's, it's useful to get like, because people throw these terms around. Oh, you need a senior this or a junior that. It's yeah. useful to know where that sits in the organization. And I totally agree with you, Devin. You start off with a squad, which then can morph into that over time, right? But the, so I think we're talking about two separate time time lapses for the same company, right? No, and so I, I want to. I, I don't think I view it as different. They're same. They're the same thing. I think like the squad metaphor does evolve into a large system, and then you do need it managerial processes. Like this, this gets into sort of like the classic Spotify model, where you have you have the the functional aspect of the team, and then you have the managerial and sort of skill set of the team. Now, obviously, there's huge problems with that model, as people have shown in a lot of really great blog posts. But I think it's just a different way of thinking about it, where org charts aren't a tree. That's what I'm just saying. Yeah, there's no, a model enough. where you don't have a tree. Fair enough. Okay, so I guess what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to decipher terminology and where that, if it's not in a tree, where does that sit? And if it isn't a tree, where does that sit? And so you and I, Devin, had a chat maybe about a year ago about the difference between like a head of product mm. versus product manager. Yes. And and those two terms tend to code tend to only exist where there's one reporting to another. Yes. And so that's what I'm trying to understand. It's like a squad would likely not have both. And so what I'm trying to yes. 
No, it's quite a different boat. A head of product is a is an exact level role, similar to a CTO. So walk us through that. Walk us through that. That sort of. Oh, that's it. These terms. Product head of product. I would also call like your CPO. I use those interchangeable terms. Chief product Mm -hmm. officer. That's your executive level role, whose job it is to to set the overall vision of the product and company and work directly with the CTO and CEO to make sure everything's in line with those expectations and everyone, that's it. Product managers are literally people who are managing an aspect of the product. So the engineering terminology would be CTO and engineering manager. I would say like you could, you could equate those. Now, how you then skill up those different titles in your company can be slightly different, right? Mm-hmm. But, but the, the, those are equivalent terminologies. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, David, I, you know, we've been kind of playing around with this idea of, of who to hire when and, and whether to squat or not. And, and what we've, we've stumbled upon is the fact that no matter which way you look at it, there's going to be teams that aren't necessarily talking to one hand or the, talking to another. If you're the commercial side of the team, you might be involved or not. And, and I just wanted to ask you guys, what are the best practices to get communications between teams going? You know, there's there's fiefdoms that form sometimes. There's like niches, and and even with the squad format, where there might be a product manager there and a few other people involved, you end up having a separation from the rest of the organization. What are the best practices you guys have seen to bridge and have people collaborating on all aspects of a company? Involve engineers in the product decisions and make sure they understand the commercial decisions behind them as well. The worst thing you can do is just create tickets in Jira, assign them to engineers and tell them to get on with it because they're going to, I'm sure that many times they'll be happy to do those things, but they're going to want to know why, why is this a higher priority than something else? Particularly if there is a real technical debt issue and they feel like that should be addressed first before building some new feature. And so you need to have engineers in the same room, in the same meetings, same conversations where all those product decisions are being made. And they need to be able to understand them, need to be able to ask questions about them, and they need to be able to push back on those decisions. And one of the things we did at Servidentity was had a product planning methodology where nobody had priority, not even me as a CT as a CEO. And we would debate which issues, um, which tickets would get prioritize and I'd have our commercial team bringing tickets. We'd have our support team bringing tickets to represent issues that were being raised to our um, support system. The engineers themselves would bring their own tickets and then we would debate. And most of the time, 95% of the time, we would come to a group decision on what was prioritized and everyone would understand. And sometimes marketing were annoyed because an engineering priority got higher, but they understood it was because someone was being woken up every single night and needed to be fixed first. And then sometimes the engineers were annoyed because marketing won because there was a conference coming up that we needed something released for. And only very rarely was there a deadlock. And then I would use my consular veto as the CEO to overrule, but I think that happened once or twice. Um, And people might not agree with the decisions, but at least they understand the reasoning. And that is the key to engineering happiness. Consular veto. That sounds cool. Devin. Yeah, I'm going to echo David a bit here, but like my, my rule is like you make space to let people get involved. Because if you don't make space for it, like people, people don't really want to, you know, 
some people have the a very aggressive personality where they're happy to barge in and be like, we need to be doing this. Why aren't we doing this? But a lot of people don't, especially if there's some hierarchy in place in the company. And so there's like a couple things that I think every company should do to create this necessary space to allow even the most junior person a voice in product decisions, because they're, 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 you know, their insight might be critical to making better decisions. Okay. So the first one is, is a formal product meeting, which job isn't to like set the sprint or choose what to work on. It's reviewing what's being worked on. And I just call this like the product meeting. And I'm just going to use sort of a younger company, like a 20 person company as a model, but you basically have the, the head of each department. And this could be the product managers from different squads. This could be the, the, the founders and the head of marketing and the head of sales or, or whatever it is. You all meet and the, meet, the purpose of the meeting is to look at what we're working on currently on our roadmap, what's up next and what's in the backlog. And the idea being is like, are we working on the right thing? Is what's next the most important thing? And are we missing anything obvious that we should be looking at? And what I often do is I, I you can invite anybody to this meeting. It's great when you're remote because it's just a Zoom call and you can just have the, the council and you have everyone else watching and they can comment. And that's at the meeting. There's no decisions made. It's just reviewing that everything's there. And, and that's sort of the product meeting is super important. And the second one is show and tell, which is showing off to the rest of the business what's being worked on and what's been completed. And this is both from every aspect. So what did marketing do this week? What did sales do this week? What did product do this week? What did you know the new junior development team do in exploration and API design do this week? And that creates cohesiveness across just vision, right? This is how the CEO can show what you're doing without being like, I'm the CEO, do this, right? You're showing what the team is actually working on. And again, you do these back to, not back to back, but maybe you do it, you know, the show and tell one day, but you have the product meeting the next day because then everyone's thinking about this stuff. And all of a sudden, priorities start to fall away from stuff that used to be in the backlog and is being staged for weeks. And you're like, you know what? This other thing seems so much more important now that I understand a little bit more clearly what our vision and purpose of mm. you know this product is. Mm. Like it, you got to create create the space for it. Mm. And and this of course I think shards very well as you grow a company. And so you have a squad like you do this inside your squad. Right? Like you can just do this yourself. This 1 hour meeting. Not even 1 hour. Sometimes it's just like half an hour because you just got to go through what's there. And and it, and it creates a lot of cohesiveness I find. So yeah, you just got you got to make space to bridge the gap between it. Awesome. So one last question to both of you, um, and we could conclude on this. What are the top three plus one startup killers you've seen across product and engineering? Now, I'm going to ask David first, but the reason why I say plus one is because I'm going to add to that list as a number one is not creating space for people to get involved, right? So that last point you made, Devin, I, thought, I think is powerful enough. As you know, one of the things that most kills startups in general in the first year is co-founder disputes. And so in that spirit, I'm just applying it specifically to the product and engineering practice within a, a startup. What are the top three plus one startup kills you've seen across product and engineering? The plus one off the off that list already is not creating space for people to get involved. David, what are the top three? The first one would be not having someone technical on the founding team. And if they're not there, then finding someone as soon as possible, because as we discussed, you can't talk to engineers as a non-technical person in enough detail to be able to run a business. The second thing would be rewriting things from scratch 
Now, the first version of a product never survives the lifetime of the company. So you have to rewrite things at some point. All big companies have done that. But spending, wasting time rewriting something that doesn't need to be rewritten is the biggest killer. And this often comes because there is no technical co-founder because the engineers advocate for rewriting something because there's a new framework or a new language or the new team just don't like the existing code. And they advocate it with all sorts of really shiny reasons because you can make very legitimate technical reasons for rewriting things. And the non-technical co-founder just can't push back on that. Um, and then probably the the third thing, maybe struggling to find something here, but the third thing is just having too many people reporting to a single person. So there is no coordination. And that means that the team is unhappy. The manager can't, and they don't understand what's going on within their team. Coordination starts to fail. And then people start going off into their own silos. And as a bonus one, that's probably linked to the same the same reason is just not involving everyone in the whole company in those key prioritization decisions, certainly engineering in what they're, they're prioritizing and what they're building. And as the company scales, maybe you can't do that when you've got thousands, thousands of people potentially. Um, but what we just talked about in terms of bringing the engineers into the decision-making processes so that they understand what's going on um, when different departments, different teams are, are deciding what, what gets built. Devin, I'll put you in the hot seat uh, if you want to add any new ones. I've put it in yeah, the chat I'll, channel. I'll, I'll try not. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, I, I agree with David 100% on all of those yeah. things. So I'll, I'll try not to overlap too much. But I guess I'll, I'll do a small caveat on the first one, which is like they can't build from day one. And I sort of change from build because there are a lot of great tools out there that let you get pretty far along some basic functionality to start testing ideas, start trying stuff, you know? So like you may, like I, I 100% agree. You, if you're building a software company, why would you not have software people on the founding team? Like if that's just, I, I know there are examples out there where it worked, but like, man, there are very few of them. So like, but now with no code and a lot of stuff you can take together, you can get pretty far along with some basic business processes. So cool. So like you got to build from day one. There's no excuse anymore at all. But the the second one I think is a little bit different is um, building it from scratch because, you know, so there's a lot of stuff you need to make to build a complete application. It doesn't mean you know how to make it 100% original in-house every time, right? Like imagine if we baked a cake from scratch every time. We have to grow wheat. You have to mill it. Like it doesn't make sense. Go buy flour. <laughs> so like nowadays it's like, do you really need to create your own auth system? Maybe just pay for one. You know, they're really good. <laughs> you don't need to spend what turns out to be four weeks of engineering time just so someone can log in. Like that's nuts. Um, so that's one that kills a lot of companies. They're just wasting time on like what is an interesting engineering problem and like it tickles your engineering brain, but it doesn't help your business. And, and the other one that I think is really important in the context of what we're talking about is not firing the toxic employee sooner. I think a lot of young founders who haven't really managed a lot of people, haven't made a lot of like critical hires. Once they make that amazing hire on paper, they sort of just go, great, it's done. Like this person's going to be us for years. And then a year later, like, why don't we like working with them? You know, they're not doing the reviews. They're not looking at their team. They're not talking to other people and seeing that maybe this one person just isn't a right fit 
for culture reasons, for maybe the person wasn't very truthful on their CV in the first place. Like who knows? It's okay to let people go if it's not a good match. And you need to pull that trigger sooner than later. Don't let it fester and turn off other people from joining your company. So it's a mistake that a lot of people, I made it. I'm guilty of this mistake in my first business. So yeah. Excellent. Well, guys, that was amazing. I love, love speaking about you. So much to learn. I, I, I could spend hours just asking you questions that I personally also have. So uh, thanks for joining David, Devin, and guys, we'll, we'll share some of the show notes, some of these points so you can follow them. But uh, until next time. Thanks. It was fun. Thanks, man. Thank you for having me.